Malachi chapter 1. I don't have a pew Bible. Has anyone looked that up? I don't know what page number we're on. But last book of the Old Testament, so it should be easy to find. Malachi chapter 1. A prophecy. The word of the Lord to Israel through Malachi. I have loved you, says the Lord. But you ask, how have you loved us? Was not Esau Jacob's brother, declares the Lord? Yet I have loved Jacob, but Esau I have hated. And I have turned his hill country into a wasteland and left his inheritance to the desert jackals. Edom may say, though we have been crushed, we will rebuild the ruins. But this is what the Lord Almighty says. They may build, but I will demolish. They will be called the wicked land, a people always under the wrath of the Lord. You will see it with your own eyes and say, great is the Lord even beyond the borders of Israel. A son honours his father and a slave his master. If I am a father, where is the honour due me? If I am a master, where is the respect due me, says the Lord Almighty? It is you priests who show contempt for my name. But you ask, how have we shown contempt for your name? By offering defiled food on my altar. But you ask, how have we defiled you? By saying that the Lord's table is contemptible. When you offer blind animals for sacrifice, is that not wrong? When you sacrifice lame or diseased animals, is that not wrong? Try offering them to your governor. Would he be pleased with you? Would he accept you, says the Lord Almighty? Now plead with God to be gracious to us. With such offerings from your hands, will he accept you? says the Lord Almighty. Oh, that one of you would shut the temple doors so that you would not light useless fires on my altar. I am not pleased with you, says the Lord Almighty, and I will accept no offerings from your hands. My name will be great among the nations, from where the sun rises to where it sets. In every place, incense and pure offerings will be brought to me because my name will be great among the nations, says the Lord Almighty. But you profane it by saying, the Lord's table is defiled and its food is contemptible. And you say, what a burden. And you sniff at it contemptuously, says the Lord Almighty. When you bring injured, lame or diseased animals and offer them as sacrifices, should I accept them from your hands, says the Lord? Cursed is the cheat who has, who has an acceptable male in his flock and vows to give it, but then sacrifices a blemished animal to the Lord. For I am a great king, says the Lord Almighty, and my name is to be feared among the nations. Well, Vara may be a hard act to follow, but I'm going to attempt to. Uh, so... <laughs> Uh, we're going to have our sermon now. Uh, if you'd like to find Malachi chapter 1, if you haven't got a Bible open there at the moment, that'd be uh, a good place for you to be. I'm going to pray for us uh, and ask for God to help us understand his word. Let's pray together. Father God, we thank you for this day that you have given us, uh, and we thank you for this new year that's before us and the opportunities that it presents. Uh, we pray that you would help us to think carefully about how we can use 
uh, our time uh, this year and our very lives to honour you. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, now, people will often express that they feel like God has let them down uh, or disappointed them. Uh, you may have felt that way at different times during uh, your life and you certainly may have felt that way at some point during the last 12 months. Interrupted travel plans, painful separation from family members, uh, work thrown into chaos, maybe your income has been seriously impacted, home life has become problematic or perhaps more problematic uh, because of the repeated lockdowns. You might have genuine fears about your health. Perhaps you have experienced a significant deterioration in your health or lost someone who was close to you. Now, they may not have been your experiences, but no doubt there are some among us who will have felt like God went missing for them during the last year, perhaps even when they felt like they needed him more than ever. Now, the people that Malachi is writing to feel that way. Life has not been going well for them and they feel like God has let them down. But they feel more than just disappointed about that. God's people are actually accusing him of not loving them. They're suggesting that God, in fact, cannot be trusted. Malachi is a book where we see God responding to that accusation. It's a book that wants to assure us that God, in fact, is faithful, that he always keeps his promises and that he delights in blessing his people. We're going to be spending the next couple of weeks looking at the book of Malachi and seeing what God has and wants to teach us about his love for us. And so the book begins with what sounds a little bit like a lover's tiff. Look at verse 2 of chapter 1. I have loved you, says the Lord, but you ask, how have you loved us? Malachi begins with this affirmation by God uh, to his people. He declares his love for them. But the Israelites aren't so sure. They counter by asking God, how has he loved them? And as we'll see in the rest of this letter, they're, they're not kind of inviting God to remind them all of, the, of all the ways in which he has loved them. This is really an accusation. Uh, they're challenging God's claim that he loves them. And so why are the people responding in that way? What's their beef with God? Well, to be fair, uh, they've been doing it pretty tough of late. The Israelites that Malachi is addressing here, uh, as Phil mentioned earlier, they'd returned to the promised land after some years in exile, but returning to the land wasn't all they'd hoped it to be. It's been a real struggle for them. The great hopes and the promises that we see in the words of some of the prophets like Ezekiel and Jeremiah, where they spoke about a new kingdom, a greater kingdom, even than the ones that David and Solomon ruled over. That simply hasn't materialised. Israel is barely a nation, more like a backwater province of the great Persian Empire, which ruled at the time. And they still don't have their own king. They don't rule themselves. They've got a Persian governor appointed to rule over them. And they're struggling. They're struggling economically as well. And the people are losing hope. And they're losing their faith in God. And so God sends Malachi to both reassure them of his love, but to deliver a, home, a few home truths as well. 
Now, we don't really know anything about Malachi, uh, the person that the book is named after. Uh, and in fact, the name Malachi literally translates as my messenger. So Malachi could be the actual name of the prophet, or it could simply be a generic term for this particular prophet's job uh, that God has sent him as his messenger to deliver the message that we read in the book of Malachi. Uh, Malachi is one of the last books that was written in the Old Testament, in our Old Testament order. We actually have it arranged so that it is the final book in the Old Testament, but there are a couple that came after it, uh, namely Ezra and Nehemiah. Uh, but this book was written probably about 460 BC, as best as we can tell. Um, it's about 100 years after the people had returned to the land from their period of exile in Babylon. The book itself is structured around these six oracles. Um, each oracle begins with a, a statement or a question by God, which is then challenged or questioned by the people, and then God uh, makes his case more fully on that point. And that cycle repeats six times throughout the course of the book. The first oracle is very brief. Uh, it, we read it uh, this morning already. It's there in the first five verses where God declares his love for his people, reminds them of his covenant love for them. That's all that stuff about Jacob and Esau. Uh, it's how God has bound himself to his people in love. But as we see, the people cynically respond that they're no longer convinced about God's love for them. But God says that if they're finding things difficult, they need to have a look in their own backyard. There is a very good reason, God says, why the people are not prospering. And it's simply because they are ignoring him. They haven't been faithful to God. And uh, we see this in a number of ways in the book. We're going to look at a, a couple of them this morning. Uh, the two perhaps most obvious ways that God explains to them. Uh, and the first is the dodgy offerings that they're making to God. Uh, God explains what the problem is for them from verse 6 of chapter 1. Uh, we had it read, but read it with me again. Verse 6, chapter 1. A son honours his father and a slave his master. If I am a father, where is the honour due me? If I am a master, where is the respect due me? Says the Lord Almighty. It is you priests who show contempt for my name. But you ask, how have we shown contempt for your name? By offering defiled food on my altar. And But you ask, well, how have we defiled you? By saying that the Lord's table is contemptible. When you offer blind animals for sacrifice, is that not wrong? When you sacrifice lame or diseased animals, is that not wrong? Try offering them to your governor. Would he be pleased with you? Would he accept you? Says the Lord Almighty. You see what's going on here. When the people bring their offerings to God at the temple, they're giving God and presenting God with their scraps, their leftovers, the things that they don't really want themselves. Uh, apart from anything else, uh, they're plainly disobeying what God has commanded them to do in the law. Uh, back in the book of Leviticus, when God gave them the law through Moses, this was one of the laws he gave them. He said, Do not offer to the Lord the blind, the injured or the maimed, or anything with warts or festering or running sores, do not place any of these on the altar as a food offering presented to the Lord. They're doing the very thing that God has asked them not to do. They're choosing to ignore God, and almost the worst part of it is that they seem to act like it doesn't matter, and it shouldn't matter to God. 
They almost seem annoyed that God isn't accepting their offerings or blessing them regardless. Now we've just had Christmas and I'm guessing that some of your gifts would have been considered with great care and perhaps come at great expense. And then there were those other gifts, a little less so perhaps. See, what Israel is doing, it's kind of like giving someone a present from Seconds World. It would say something, wouldn't it, about what that person meant to you? If you were happy to give them a blender that's missing a lid and has got a big scratch down the side of it. Now, you might get something like that for yourself. I know I would. I hate paying full retail price for anything. But you probably shouldn't give that to someone else as a gift, should you? No matter how much money it's going to save you. Well, the Israelites are doing just that. They're trying to pass off their seconds onto God. And he says he won't have it. God says, you wouldn't try this on with your human governor, would you? And again, I think there's a point of reminder from God that uh, they're currently under the rule of the Persians, and there's a reason for that as well. He says, if you won't put, uh, send that up to you, your governor, uh, he says, why would you try and put it on with me? By offering God things that are essentially worthless, that nobody wants anyway, well, it's about as disrespectful as you can get. And God has noticed Go down to verse 13, where God goes on. He says, And you say, what a burden, and you sniff at it contemptuously, says the Lord Almighty. When you bring injured, lame, or diseased animals and offer them as sacrifices, should I accept them from your hand, says the Lord? Cursed is the cheat who has an acceptable male in his flock and vows to give it, but then sacrifices a blemished animal to the Lord. For I am a great king, says the Lord Almighty. And my name is to be feared among the nations. Instead of treating God as the great father and the great king that he is, they insult him by offering up these lame and blemished animals. And on top of all of that, they're having a whinge about having to do any of this at all. They're saying, what a burden. What a drag this is. Why do we have to go through all these pointless rituals and sacrifices? I love that line in verse 13 where it says they sniff at it contemptuously. It's a great line, isn't it? It says all that you need to hear about what their attitude towards the law that God has given them is like. They feel like keeping God's law has become a waste of their time and their money. Nothing but a drag, a burden. They resent having to bring these things. So all they can be bothered offering up are the lame, the blemished, the worthless things. And God, for his part, says he's sick of it. Have a look at verse 10. Oh, that one of you would shut the temple doors so that you would not light useless fires on my altar. I am not pleased with you, says the Lord Almighty, and I will accept no offering from your hands. God would rather they shut up shop than keep doing what they're doing. Uh, And we see that uh, it's not just this issue with the animal sacrifices that's going on. Uh, The same story plays out with their tithes. Um, Further on in chapter 3, if you skip ahead a little bit, God actually accuses them of theft. It's there in verse 8 of chapter 3. Will a mere mortal rob God? Yet you rob me. But you ask, how are we robbing you? In tithes and offerings, you are under a curse, your whole nation, 
because you are robbing me. Bring the whole tide into the storehouse, that there may be food in my house. Again, the people are shortchanging God and hoping he wouldn't notice. And because of this, God says, instead of being under his blessing, they're experiencing his curse. See, one of the laws God had given his people was uh, this principle of tithing. They were to bring one-tenth of all of their produce, of all of their wealth, and they were to give it to God. Well, essentially, they were giving it uh, to the Levites. Um, so if you know anything about the history of Israel, when God um, dished out the land to his people when he first gave them the promised land, uh, 11 of the 12 tribes received a land inheritance, but the Levites were set apart. They were set apart to serve in the temple, and they weren't given an allocation of land. The way that they were to be provided for was through all of their fellow Israelites contributing this tithe. Uh, that was how they were provided for. But the people weren't delivering. Uh, the tithe was not just to provide for the Levites, it was also a way for the people to express their trust in God, their dependence upon God and their thanks to God. And so we asked them to give and to give generously. In fact, God asked them to bring the very first fruits of their harvest. Uh, so not once it's all in the storehouse, so they carve off a tenth, the very first things that they harvest, God asked them to bring that. It's a way of expressing, to actively express that they trust God to provide for what they need, to trust that God would meet their needs, that he would come good on his promise to bless them. But they're not doing it. And so the people feel upset because God's not blessing them, and he certainly isn't. But the reason they're not experiencing the blessing of God is because they're not doing what God has asked them to do. They're not trusting him. And so in chapter 2, verse 2, God lays it out for them. He says, If you do not listen, and if you do not resolve to honour my name, says the Lord Almighty, I will send a curse on you, and I will curse your blessings. Yes, I have already cursed them, because you have not resolved to honour me. See, the presenting issues for them are this failure to keep the law, to offer up the animals that they should, to tithe as they should. But that's not really the heart of the matter. The main problem is that they haven't resolved to honour God. They're going through the motions of religious observance, but their hearts aren't in it. I think one of the most fascinating verses in Malachi is uh, there in chapter 3, verse 10, where God actually invites the Israelites to test him in this. Now go to chapter 3, verse 10. God says, Bring the whole tithe into the storehouse, that there may be food in my house. Test me in this, says the Lord Almighty, and see if I will not throw open the floodgates of heaven and pour out so much blessing that there will be not room enough to store it. God is so frustrated with these people that he actually dares them to put him to the test. Prove me wrong, says God. If only you'd trust me and listen, you'd see how much I want to bless you. Now, of course, in order to test God in this, they're going to have to give. They've got to be willing to bring in the full tithe, offer the right animals. They have to actively demonstrate their trust in God. But if they're willing to do that, God says, you will find me faithful. Don't worry about that. God says, I'll bless you so abundantly, there'll be no more need in the community. 
No one will be in want. See, how can you know if God is trustworthy? Well, are you even willing to find out? See, if you'll listen to God, you'll discover not only is God no liar, but more than that, you'll discover that he wants what is best for you, that he knows what is good for you, and quite simply, that he loves you. But you have to exercise some faith to grow and strengthen your faith. It's a bit like that ad that was on TV a while back now. I think they've changed their line of uh, advertising. But there was an ad on TV about smoking and willpower. Uh, and it was talking about how willpower is like a muscle that needs to be exercised. And trusting God is a bit like that, I think. It needs to be exercised in order for it to grow. Learning that God can be trusted requires us to exercise some trust at times. I wonder if 2022 will be a year for you to exercise your trust in God and find him faithful and so grow in your confidence in the goodness of God. So how do we do that? You know, we no longer live in ancient Israel. We don't have a priesthood and sacrifices and tithing laws. Things are different, but I think the issues at the heart of all this will remain the same for us as it did for them. It'll just show itself a little differently. So let me put it this way. How do the decisions you make reflect your trust in God? How do your priorities show the place that God's name, his honour, has in your life? Now, while I don't think the principle of tithing, you know, the idea of giving God a tenth of all that we earn, um, that was a law for ancient Israel. I don't think it applies to us in the same way. But at the same time, it's not unhelpful to look at where the money goes, is it? Seeing where the money goes will always give you a, a helpful window into where your priorities lie. See, if you don't really have enough trust that God will provide for your needs, you're probably not going to be inclined to be very generous with what you have, are you? If you haven't worked to cultivate contentment with the things that God has given you, you're going to be more likely to want to keep it for yourself than to give it away to others. Are you happy giving money away to support Christian ministries, to support gospel work? Not as a way for you to curry favour with God, but because you want to honour God, because you see value in the work that God is doing in this world. What would an audit of your finances reveal about how much you value God and his work in your life and his work in this world? Now, how you use your money, it's no special category, I don't think. But like every other decision that we have to make about the things that God has entrusted to us, it will say something about what matters most to us, won't it? And if you haven't set your heart to honour God, if you haven't resolved to honour God in your life, well, you'll probably be honouring something else then, won't you? Maybe that you're craving the approval of others 
your heart is set on getting acknowledgement, getting recognition from other people. It may be from your parents or your workmates, friends of yours. You may feel this need to prove something about your success through the things that you've accumulated or achieved, maybe in your studies or in your work. It could be the business that you're building or the size of your paycheck. If that's what your heart is set on, then don't be surprised when you fail to experience the ways that God wants to bless you. And I'm not talking about material wealth. I'm talking about the richness of relationship that God wants you to enjoy with him. If we follow after the Israelites of Malachi's day, we become those people who moan about the burden that it's become serving God. What a pain it is to keep all these onerous demands that God makes of us. We can fall into that pattern where we approach living for God as though it's some sort of duty, where we do what we do out of obligation. And if you think that that's what a relationship with God is like, that is a tragedy. Like the Israelites in Malachi's day, you might still be going through all the religious motions, you know your heart isn't in it. God doesn't want that kind of relationship with you. He doesn't want that kind of relationship with anyone. He doesn't want your obedience grudgingly given. He wants you to delight in serving him. He wants you to delight in him. And if people can see you obeying God out of some sense of weary obligation or maybe an unhappy negotiation where you figured out that, no, this is just the price you have to pay. That's a very poor witness to the goodness of God, isn't it? To the greatness of God. You can't be honouring God's name like that. You can't experience the goodness of God like that. God wants a genuine relationship with each one of his children. A relationship of faith and trust. A relationship which honours his name with every part of our lives. Maybe you've stopped trying to see it or you've lost sight of this and that God loves you, that God has promised to provide for you, that he wants what is best for you. Now, of course, God has done more than simply declare his love for you He's proven it, hasn't he? Hasn't God shown his love for you through sending his son? Can he make himself clearer than that? Will you trust him? Will you be even willing to test him in that? To have the courage to taste and see that the Lord is good. So what's 2020 going to look like for you? It could be a year filled with frustration with God, half-hearted religious activity, going through the motions. Or it could be a year where you commit yourself to honouring God with all of your life, one where you get to experience the blessings that God promises, the blessings that God delights to shower upon his children. 
at least we don't have to wonder what God would prefer for us. We're going to respond in prayer and Lyndall's going to lead us in that.